0: Good evening and welcome on this Father's Day, and it is a privilege for me to have some of my uh, children and son-in-law and grandchildren here, which I don't, Joyce and I don't have that as often as we'd like, but praise the Lord it happens fairly often. And so it, it's just a, it really is a special privilege to close out Father's Day as a family, literally with blood family here, and then also even very much more so the family of God with you brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I had to chuckle a little this morning as uh, Peter, in a reference to Father's Day, was talking about the chip off the old block because it reminded me of uh, some of you know, we live in the home and have lived for 23 or 20 years now, the home where I was raised, and my mom and dad had it built in 1957, I was born in 1959, and so we had the same auto mechanic, and Tim and Holmquist and I share a lot of stories about old cars and trying to keep them running, and Paul Oj was our mechanic just a half mile from our house, so close enough we could push the old car there if we had to, which Daniel may have been involved a time or two in doing that. Um, Why spend a hundred bucks for a tow if you've got kids that can push it? Um, But one time I remember not too many years back, I stopped in Auger Garage and Paul was there and he starts looking at me and what you need to know is Paul's father was the mechanic before him that owned Auger Garage and my dad, knew him really well and had him fix his cars for years, and so Paul grew up and knew my dad. Paul's just kind of looking at me, and he goes, man, you look just like the old man. And then recently, somebody told me, I think seeing a photo of Daniel or having seen Daniel and said, you know, he looks a lot like you, and I take that as a compliment. I'm not so sure whether Daniel uh, feels the same. But it, it's a funny thing, and I'm grateful for my father. Very, very thankful. Um, he served in World War II. God spared his life. He was involved in D-Day in the Navy. He was a naval lieutenant in uh, a landing ship transport. Those are the ships that come in shallow and can unload amphibious vehicles, troops, haul tanks. Uh, God spared him. He told me a few stories, and... Could easily have not made it through the war, as many did not. Then I wouldn't be here; these kids wouldn't be here. But obviously, God ordained that. I've got one reference I'm going to make to the atomic bomb here, and my my dad was actually set to sail to the Pacific after having served in the uh, you know the Atlantic side of the war, mostly you know against around France, crossing the English Channel 40 sometimes, and he was on his way to Japan, or had orders to go to, J- to the Pacific War when the uh, atomic bombs ended the war. So perhaps sparing us a loss there. Uh, but I'm really grateful for my father, and grateful for him and the many, many, many men that have fought to give us freedom. And tonight we're gonna talk about a different fight, really, the fight of faith. And two of the songs touch on points that are uh, integral or, you know, one of them in particular. um, I'm just looking at it. It was verse 4 in song, O Teach Me What It Meaneth. And Peter this morning said some gracious words about me in mentioning that I would be preaching tonight. And yet you all came. That's encouraging, um, but they were very kind words, but inside me, uh, I'll tell you what resonated is really verse, the fourth stanza of the fourth verse says, the chief of all the sinners for whom the Savior died, and this is the, the writer of the song really speaking of herself, and I mean, I know it's true what Peter said. Uh, many of you have respect for me, most of you don't know me that well. If you had known me for 46 years, as Joyce has known me, and been married to me for more than 42 years, your respect would be in a different light, let's just say, because the reality is that she knows me like none of you do, And I just thank God for her and that she has stayed with me through thick and thin. And I'm I'm just so grateful for that. And then the song, How Firm a Foundation, the fourth verse says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. And I'm going to talk a little bit about fiery trials and how they are a proving ground for our faith. My grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. That's a promise from God. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And that is an illustration that I'll be uh, sharing in my message today. And I just want us all to keep that in mind, that that is the purpose of trials and tribulations and persecutions, which Jesus promised his followers, they would endure, but it's for a good purpose. It's not for the purpose of punishment. We're gonna be, uh, we obviously had a reading from Acts chapter four, also on my third point today, I'm gonna be reading a chunk from Acts five, so really the sermon message is coming out of Acts four and five, and, Acts tells the story, really, of the dramatic transition from Jesus' in-person ministry on earth as the actual son of his mother Mary and as the supposed son. When I say supposed, I mean to the people he lived with and grew up with, the supposed son of Mary's husband, Joseph. And then most of Acts really deals with the continuation of that ministry by Jesus' originally small band of loyal disciples right after Jesus was crucified, died, and then arose. You know, it was a fairly small group. In Acts, of course, we see it explode. And Acts portrays the passing of the baton. The baton being the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jesus to this chain of disciples who would carry it and who are today still carrying it throughout the world. Luke, uh, the writer of one of the four Gospels in the Bible is, has long been recognized as the author of Acts. The date of AD 61 is widely accepted as the date of its writing. The book begins with Christ's final instructions before his ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit. It then divides into two distinct parts. There's uh, first 12 chapters tell of the travels and teachings of Peter, Stephen, and James, and the remainder of the book details Paul's conversion and his subsequent ministry. And again, my message comes out of chapters four and five, and there's a lot of scripture verses I'll be reading tonight from both Acts and some related passages but if you lock one thing in your mind, if you walk out of here with only one piece, I would hope that it would be this, which is really the crux of my message. It's just a single portion of one verse. So if you remember only one thing, remember this. It's Acts four thirteen, the last half, what I would call part B. It says, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And there was, there's, there's so much in there. And it is my desire that we would carry out of here, if, if nothing else, only that, when we leave, resolve to live in such a way that others will respond the same way to it having encountered you to having encountered me. If we do so, if you do so, you will have walked out with an atomic bomb of love that has the chain reaction power to redeem the souls of men. It has the potential to be a force for good on an order of magnitude infinitely greater than that of the two atomic bombs of destruction that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945 that brought the government of Japan to its knees in World War II to an end. I, it's not an overstatement to say that the Holy Spirit in a true, honest, transparent, forthright believer can start a chain reaction that has eternal consequences and eternal impact for good. And so that's my hope that that would be able to truly be said of each one of us. My focus here is on faith, the title of my message. I've titled it Faith Firmly Founded and I've organized it into three points. The first point being Faith Formed. The second point being Faith Founded and the third point being faith finished. And picture a cornerstone in a building project. Uh, The cornerstone is first formed by workmen, skilled workmen, and it has to be made very perfectly. Then secondly, it has to be founded. It gets placed on a foundation And then the whole building is finished, if you will, off of that chief cornerstone. And we know that in our lives, we have that chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so, first, I'll talk about faith formed. Philippians 2.13 says, "'For it is God which worketh in you "'both to will and to do of his good pleasure.'" That power of God which worketh in you is the Holy Spirit. He persuades you to believe the gospel and to place your faith for eternal life solely in the redeeming blood shed by Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. It's His work, not ours. The gift of faith. In John chapter six, 48 to 58, Jesus explains to a throng of followers that to be his disciple, one must eat his flesh and drink his blood. This was not a literal command, but a metaphorical description of the complete integration with him, the giving over of oneself to uniting with him body, mind and soul that is necessary to be saved from one's sin and to be granted a home in God's eternal heaven. Now this throng that Jesus was, that spoke these words to, it didn't sit well with a lot of them. They had serious issues with it. And in John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69, we see, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's response here clearly shows that faith in Jesus Christ had been formed in him. He would not have made that statement and Jesus responded to him that it was the Holy Ghost that showed you this. This was not you know, of man. This was not man that showed you this. This is a revelation of the Holy Ghost to you. So it reveals that, Jesus, that faith in Jesus had been formed in him but we know that After that point, when Jesus is actually on trial and about to be crucified, that Peter thrice denied Jesus. So clearly his faith was not fully formed. It was not complete because he denied him three times, which he thought would never happen. He told Jesus, you know, I will not deny you. But Jesus knew. And again, what Jesus knew was that Peter needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we will also see in Acts chapter 5, the fruit of Peter and others filled with the Holy Spirit. In James 5, 7 through 11, it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful, and of tender mercy. We must not fall into the trap of believing that Peter or John were born wise, godly, powerful preachers, natural leaders. We have no basis for making that assumption. They were anything but that. In fact, uh, in the section that Calvin Todd read, the Jewish priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees were absolutely correct in their assessment of Peter and John. They were unlearned and ignorant men, as far as the world of formal Jewish education was concerned. But the Jewish religious elite didn't recognize that a portion of scripture that they all would have been very familiar with was playing out before their very eyes. But their pride, hardened like cement by their extensive formal education, prevented them from understanding. Isaiah 55, eight through 11 is the scripture segment that I'm referencing that these men would have known. They all would have been very familiar with the scriptures from the prophet Isaiah. It says, this is God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. The unstoppable faith and godly character of Peter and John, empowered by the Holy Spirit, had come through the only means possible, by having lived, walked, worked, talked, laughed, suffered, and loved with Jesus Christ himself day in and day out, for about three years. They endured in their commitment to abide with Jesus. We today, through the living and active word of God, and we must remember that Jesus is the word become flesh, empowered by the eternal Holy Spirit can and will develop the same unstoppable faith and character that Peter and John possessed, And we can and will boldly influence those around us for Christ, as did Peter and John, if we continue to abide with Christ and continue to allow him to found the faith that he has formed in every one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ. So that's a little bit about faith formed. Faith founded. It is not my purpose tonight to delineate the difference between having the Holy Spirit in us and being filled with the Holy Spirit. The former occurs for every Christian as a necessary component of being born again into the faith of Jesus Christ. God places his spirit within the new believer. That's why the new believer is a new creation. The Bible has much to say about that and it is a topic worthy of study, but again, it's not something that I'm gonna delve into this evening. But in considering the growth of Peter, John, and the other apostles, we see their spiritual growth evidenced by trial, tribulation, and persecution. That refining, purifying process is spoken of frequently throughout the Bible. Silver isn't mined in a pure form. It is brought out of the earth, mixed with impurity. Then there's an intense process of refining, of being put through a series of fires of testing. And the process continues until the refiner can clearly see his image reflected in the silver, indicating that it is at that point largely free of impurities. There are a lot of similarities to the development of the faith of Peter and John and the apostles, and those same similarities exist in the development of the faith of God's people today, of you and I. Since his ascension back to heaven, the face of Jesus and his disciples is the image of the Holy Spirit being ever more clearly revealed as the impurities of character are removed by the refining process of the trials of life. In John chapter 16, uh, verse seven, and also verses 12 through 15, nevertheless, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Once the strengthening process has reached the point where our faith is solid enough that we are no longer children who must be fed milk, but are adults who can handle meat, our faith must be proven by continuing trials, tribulations, and persecutions. It's a theme we see throughout the Bible, God's people enduring trial, enduring hardship, enduring persecutions, and through it, developing greater and greater strength in the Lord, greater and greater faith in the Lord. My third point is faith finished. Now for you and I, there is never going to be, as long as we're alive and breathing, a perfection of our faith, by that I mean a complete finishing. Because we know that one day we will see Jesus face to face, know as we are known, but it's made clear in scripture that until we die and are received into that eternal destiny, that we will not see better than darkly, dimly, as in a mirror and we will not be finished. The sanctifying process will go on for the rest of our lives, and we can either take that with good cheer, as we will see an example of the apostles doing in Acts 5, or we can moan, murmur, and complain as the Israelites did so consistently throughout the Old Testament, and as I know I far too easily do myself on a day-to-day basis. In Acts 5 1 through 15, we first are told the story of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and then of miraculous works being done by the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see in that segment the dire consequences that can come from creating a pretense of faith. Ananias and Sapphira conspire together to appear to be giving everything they own for the good of the brethren, but in truth, their purpose is only to receive praise from men and women of faith while secretly, selfishly withholding a portion for themselves. God judges their hearts by taking their lives immediately. And then, immediately following the burying of Ananias and Sapphira, we are told of a miraculous expression of the, of the apostles' deep-seated faith. Acts 5:16. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Those mighty works of the apostles are part of the fulfillment of what Jesus had told his disciples. In John fourteen eleven to 13, Jesus tells his disciples, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son." Scripture is very clear in instructing us and giving us examples demonstrating that the proof of godliness, of saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is observable fruit produced in our day-to-day living. Matthew seven fifteen to 20 says, "'Beware of false prophets "'which come to you in sheep's clothing, "'but inwardly they are ravening wolves, ye shall know them. The fruit of Ananias and Sapphira was corrupt and God judged it harshly. The fruit of the apostles was good and God blessed them for it. Our fruit is our works supporting or denying our words. Pure works endure and their endurance can be known, can be proven only by surviving the test of prolonged, very hot fire. That's what the world takes notice of. What are we like when we're under persecution? What are we like when we're tested, when we're tried? How do we handle the circumstances of life that they see some fall apart under? If we handle it differently, then that's a testimony that there is something truly different about us. And some will be curious enough to be drawn to that light. And our example is Jesus in this regard. In Hebrews 12, chapter 12, verse two, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus does not ever ask anything of us that he himself both was not willing to endure, even though he justifiably had no reason to have to endure it, and also, He doesn't ask anything of us that he himself actually did not endure. He was in all ways tempted, such as is common to man. So we have the kind of leader that we can follow wholeheartedly. He's been through the war and he has set the example by going in front of us. And he just asks us to trust him if we follow him that he will not bring us through painlessly, not maybe fulfill any or many of the dreams and hopes and thoughts that we have, but he does promise that he is going to work all things together for good to them that love him, to them that are the called according to his purpose, which is them that hold to their faith and allow him to strengthen and increase it And I'm going to close with a, it's a 17 or 18 verses from Acts 5, which shows clearly how the apostles' faith was tested and how it was proven good by the fruit it produced. Now, keep in mind again in chapter 4, we had Peter and John preaching. We have scribes, captain of the temple, Sadducees, bringing them in and threatening them trying to scare them into changing their witness, to stop preaching, to stop doing what they were commanded by Jesus to do. And once in a while I stop and just try to picture the actual scene, because these things really happened. You have this council, and you have these men, and they're kind of dancing around because they... Can't deny, as it says, this impotent, this lame man healed who had been lame for more than 40 years. Okay, And what it reminds me of, uh, there was a sales trainer that I listened to in my early days of my sales career. And he was promoting the um, going out door to door, getting your face inside a business and seeing people face to face you know, not making, back in that day, it was phone calls you couldn't email back then, but um, face-to-face, and it was funny, but he said, um, his main point was this, that a phone call is one of the easiest things to get rid of, can be screened out by the receptionist or assistant The person on the other end can just make it short and say they got to go and hang up. But his point was, if you show up and get inside the office and get face-to-face with them, the hardest thing to get rid of is a body. And this is the issue that the scribes and captain of the temple and Sadducees are facing. Like Lazarus, where they were scheming, how can we get rid of him? Because he's doing as much damage as Jesus because everybody knows that no one but God can bring the dead back from life. Similarly, this guy that was lame for 40 years is standing there healed and people are praising God and Peter and John and the apostles are boldly witnessing that it's through the name and power of Jesus Christ that he was healed and they're just killing themselves. How can we... How can we deny this? Which, of course, they can't. And so, you know, but if we're not out there engaged, then we're not going to end up with these testimonies. It takes faith. So I'm going to read now from Acts chapter 5, verses 25 to 42. And I'd like us to, again, keep in mind what I said at the beginning, that there was really only one thing. I mean, they, these leaders, these religious elite, these highly educated, respected leaders of society couldn't figure out how these ignorant, unlearned fishermen could, were pulling this off. You know, they just couldn't wrap their brains around it. And it was truly, just befuddling them. And listen how the apostles respond to these trials, these persecutions. Acts 5, 25 to 42. Then came one and told them, this is one came and told these leaders, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, the priests, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. God had let them out of the prison that they had been put in to keep the trouble from growing. But they're out because the Lord let them out. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straitly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Implication here? Peter and John and the apostles are saying, God hath not given it to you, obviously. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. Lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and daily in the temple, and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful story. Again, these were men that not that long before, Peter denied Christ. When Jesus was hauled off, basically all of his apostles fled, we're told. And now, There is nothing that can persuade them from witnessing and testifying to the truth of the gospel, to the reality of their risen Lord and Savior. And they rejoiced at being beaten innocently because they knew that their Lord had also suffered innocently and yet endured it for the joy that was set before him. That joy of seeing one day that that faith that was formed and then founded and is being finished would one day yield great eternal rewards that the people that could kill their bodies could never take away. So as we contemplate that, the application for this, to me at least, is just that each one of us would go And be with Jesus. Thank you.